Hi, this is book three, episode 21 of Puritans Read, where we read great Puritan works, authors, and biographies. Continuing today, The Godly Man's Picture by Thomas Watson, chapter four, showing the characteristics of a godly man, and continuing section 19, Sins a Godly Man Will Not Allow Himself, number three. A beloved sin. There is usually one sin that is the favorite, the sin which the heart is most fond of. A beloved sin lies in a man's bosom, as the disciple whom Jesus loved leaned on his bosom. John thirteen twenty three. A godly man will not indulge a darling sin. I kept myself from mine iniquity. Psalm eighteen twenty three. I will not indulge the sin of my constitution, to which the bias of my heart more naturally inclines. Fight neither with small nor great, save only with the king. 1 Kings 22.31 A godly man fights this king sin. The oracle of Apollo answered the people of Syrah that if they would live in peace among themselves, they must make continual war with those strangers who were on their borders. If we would have peace in our souls, we must maintain a war against our favorite sin and never leave off till it is subdued. Question, how shall we know the beloved sin? Answer one, the sin which a man does not love to have reproved is the darling sin. Herod could not endure having his incest spoken against. If the prophet meddles with that sin, it shall cost him his head. Men can be content to have other sins declaimed against, but if the minister puts his finger on the sore and touches this sin, their hearts begin to burn in malice against him. Herodias was an ominous sign. Answer two. The sin on which the thoughts run most is the darling sin. Whichever way the thoughts go, the heart goes. He who is in love with a person cannot keep his thoughts off the object. Examine what sin runs most in your mind. What sin is first in your thoughts and greets you in the morning? That is the predominant sin. Answer three. The sin which has most power over us and most easily leads us captive is the one beloved by the soul. There are some sins that a man can resist better. If they come for entertainment, he can more easily put them off. But the bosom sin comes as a suitor, and he cannot deny it but is overcome by it. The young man in the gospel had repulsed many sins but there was one sin that soiled him, and that was covetousness. Christians, mark what sin you are most readily led captive by. That is the harlot in your bosom. It is a sad thing that a man should be so bewitched by lust that if it asks him to part with not only half the kingdom, Esther 7.2, but the whole kingdom of heaven, he must part with it to gratify that lust. Answer four. 
The sin which men use arguments to defend is the beloved sin. He that hath a jewel in his bosom will defend it for very life. So when there is any sin in the bosom, men will defend it. The sin we advocate and dispute for is the besetting sin. If the sin is passion, we plead for it. I do well to be angry, Jonah 4, 9. If the sin is covetousness, and we vindicate it, and perhaps wrest scripture to justify it, that is the sin which lies nearest the heart. Answer 5. The sin which most troubles us, and flies most in the face in an hour of sickness and distress, that is the Delilah sin. When Joseph's brethren were distressed, their sin in selling their brother came to remembrance. We are verily guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the anguish of his soul when he besought us, and we would not hear. Therefore is this distress come upon us. Genesis 42:21. So when a man is on a sickbed, and conscience says, You have been guilty of such a sin, you went on in it and rolled it like honey under your tongue. Conscience is reading him a sad lecture. That was the beloved sin, for sure. Answer 6. The sin which a man finds most difficulty in giving up is the endeared sin. Of all his sons, Jacob found most difficulty in parting with Benjamin. Joseph is not, and Simeon is not, and you will take Benjamin away. Genesis 42:36. So the sinner says, This and that sin I have parted with, but Benjamin must go? Must I part with this delightful sin? That goes to the heart. As with a castle that has several forts about it, the first and second fort are taken, but when it comes to the castle, the governor will rather fight and die than yield that. So a man may allow some of his sins to be demolished, but when it comes to one sin, that is the taking of the castle. He will never agree to part with that. That is the master sin, for sure. The besetting sin is a God-provoking sin. Wise men of Troy counseled Priam to send Helena back to the Greeks, not permitting himself to be abused any longer by the charms of her beauty, because keeping her within the city would lay the foundation of a fatal war. So we should put away our Delilah sin, lest it incense the God of heaven and make him commence a war against us. The besetting sin is of all others most dangerous. As Samson's strength lay in his hair, so the strength of sin lies in this beloved sin. This is like poison striking the heart which brings death. A godly man will lay the axe of repentance to this sin and hew it down. He sets this sin like Uriah in the forefront of the battle so that it may be slain. He will sacrifice this Isaac. He will pluck out his right eye so that he may see better to go to heaven. Number four, 
those sins which the world counts lesser. There is no such thing as little sin, yet some may be deemed less comparatively, but a good man will not indulge himself in these, such as, firstly, sins of omission. Some think it no great matter to omit family or private prayer. They can go for several months and God never hears from them. A godly man will as soon live without food as without prayer. He knows that every creature of God is sanctified by prayer. 1 Timothy 4, 5 The bird may shame many Christians. It never takes a drop, but the eye is lifted up towards heaven. Secondly, a godly man dare not allow himself vain, frothy discourse much less that which looks like an oath. If God will judge for idle words, will he not much more for idle oaths? Thirdly, a godly man dare not allow himself rash censuring. Some think this is a small matter. They will not swear, but they will slander. This is very evil. You wound a man in that which is dearest to him. He who is godly turns all his censures upon himself. He judges himself for his own sins, but is very cherry and tender of the good name of another. Use. As you would be numbered among the genealogies of the saints, do not indulge yourselves in any sin. Consider the mischief that one sin lived in will do. One sin gives Satan as much advantage against you as more sins. The fowler can hold a bird by one wing. Satan held Judas fast by one sin. Number two, one sin lived in proves that the heart is not sound. He who hides one rebel in his house is a traitor to the crown. The person who indulges one sin is a traitorous hypocrite. Number three, one sin will make way for more, as a little thief can open the door to more. Sins are linked and chained together. One sin will draw on more. David's adultery made way for murder. One sin never goes alone. If there's only one nest egg, the devil can brood on it. Number four, one sin is as much a breach of God's law as more sins. He that shall offend in one point is guilty of all. James 2.10 The king may make a law against felony, treason, and murder. If a man is guilty of only one of these, he is as much a transgressor of the law as if he were guilty of all. Number five. One sin lived in prevents Christ from entering. One stone in the pipe keeps out the water. One sin indulged in obstructs the soul and keeps the streams of Christ's blood from running into it. Number six. One sin lived in will spoil all your good duties. A drop of poison will spoil a glass of wine. Abimelech, a bastard, destroyed 70 of his brethren, 
Judges 9, 5. One bastard sin will destroy 70 prayers. One dead fly will corrupt the box of ointment. Number seven. One sin lived in will be a canker worm to eat out the peace of conscience. It takes away the manna from the ark and leaves only a rod. Alas, what a scorpion lies within, Seneca. One sin is a pirate to rob a Christian of his comfort. One jarring string pulls all the music out of tune. One sin countenanced will spoil the music of conscience. Number eight, one sin allowed will damn as well as more sins. One disease is enough to kill. If offense is made never so strong, leave open only one gap and the wild beast may enter and tread down the corn. If only one sin is allowed in the soul, you leave open a gap for the devil to enter. It is a simile of Chrysostom that a soldier may have his helmet and his breastplate on, but if only one place has no armor, the bullet may enter there, and he may as well be shot as if he had no armor on. So if you favor only one sin, you leave a part of your soul unprotected, and the bullet of God's wrath may enter there and shoot you. One sin may shut you out of heaven. And as Jerome says, what difference is there between being shut out for more sins and for one? Therefore, beware of cherishing one sin. One millstone will sink a man into the sea, as well as a hundred. Number nine. One sin harbored in the soul will unfit us for suffering. How soon an hour of trial may come. A man who has hurt his shoulder cannot carry a heavy burden, and a man who has any guilt in his conscience cannot carry the cross of Christ. Will he who cannot deny his lust for Christ deny his life for Christ? One unmortified sin in the soul will bring forth the bitter fruit of apostasy. If, then, you would show yourselves godly, Give a certificate of divorce to every sin. Kill the Goliath sin. Let not sin reign. Romans 6, 12. In the original, it is let not sin king it over you. Grace and sin may be together, but grace and the love of sin cannot. Therefore, parley with sin no longer, but with the spear of mortification, spill the heart blood of every sin. Section 20. A godly man is good in his relationships. To be good in general is not enough, but we must show piety in our relationships. Number one, he who is good as a magistrate is godly. The magistrate is God's representative. A godly magistrate holds the balance of justice and gives everyone his right. Thou shalt not respect persons, neither take a gift. For a gift doth blind the eyes. Deuteronomy 16, 19. A magistrate must judge the cause, not the person. 
He who allows himself to be corrupted by bribes is not a judge, but a party. A magistrate must do that which is according to the law. Acts 23.3 And in order that he may do justice, he must examine the cause. The archer who wishes to shoot right must first see the target. Number two. He who is good as a minister is godly. Ministers must be, firstly, painstaking. Preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season. 2 Timothy 4.2 The minister must not be idle. Sloth is as inexcusable in a minister as sleeping in a sentry. John the Baptist was a voice crying. Matthew 3.3 A dumb minister is of no more use than a dead physician. A man of God must work in the Lord's vineyard. It was Augustine's wish that Christ might find him at his coming, either praying or preaching. Secondly, knowledgeable. The priest's lips should keep knowledge, and they should seek the law at his mouth. Malachi 2, 7. It was said in honor of Gregory that he was an ocean of divinity. The prophets of old were called seers. 1 Samuel 9, 9. It is absurd to have blind seers. Christ said to Peter, Feed my sheep. John 21, 16. But how sad it is when the shepherd needs to be fed. Ignorance in a minister is like blindness in an oculist. Under the law, he who had the plague in his head was unclean. Leviticus 13, 44. Thirdly, a plain preacher, suiting his matter and style to the capacity of his audience. 1 Corinthians 14, 19. Some ministers, like eagles, love to soar aloft in abstruse metaphysical notions, thinking they are most admired when they are least understood. They who preach in the clouds, instead of hitting their people's conscience, shoot over their heads. Fourthly, zealous in reproving sin. Rebuke them sharply, Titus 1.13. Epiphanius said of Elijah that he sucked fire out of his mother's breasts. A man of God must suck the fire of zeal out of the breasts of scripture. Zeal in a minister is as proper as fire on the altar. Some are afraid to reprove, like the swordfish which has a sword in its head, but is without a heart. So they carry the sword of the Spirit about them, but they have no heart to draw it out in reproof against sin. How many have sown pillows under their people, Ezekiel thirteen eighteen, making them sleep so securely that they never woke till they were in hell. Fifthly, holy in heart and life. A, in heart. How sad it is for a minister to preach that to others which he never felt in his own soul, to exhort others to holiness and himself be a stranger to it. 
Oh, that this were not too often so. How many blow the Lord's trumpet with foul breath. B. In life. Under the law, before the priest served at the altar, they washed in the laver. Such as serve in the Lord's house must first be washed from gross sin in the laver of repentance. The life of a minister should be a walking Bible. Basil said of Gregory that he thundered in his doctrine and lightened in his conduct. A minister must imitate John the Baptist, who was not only a voice crying, but a light shining. John 5:35. They who live in contradiction to what they preach disgrace this excellent calling. They turn their books into cups. And though they are angels by office, yet they are devils in their lives. Jeremiah 23:15. This has been book 3, episode 21 of Puritan's Read. We read The Godly Man's Picture by Thomas Watson, chapter 4, the latter part of section 19 and the beginning of section 20.